0: The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome okay, everyone. So, some of you have been coming to these talks for a while and know that since the beginning of September We've been trying to look at our practice in a really straightforward, pragmatic way. You know, it's pretty easy to see how our mind is running. It's running because it wants things. It's running because it's afraid of things or disturbed by things. It's running because we're confused, you know, running in circles. And at some point, we realize all this running isn't serving anybody. And we're willing to take up a different approach, which you could say maybe is the approach of inquiry. Instead of using life energy to get, to get rid of, to run in circles, we're using the mind's energy, the life's energy, to inquire how it is. So to inquire into the way that it is, meaning the present moment. And in a way, it's like I've mentioned, it's locating that how it is now and how we're relating to how it is now is vitally important in terms of whether we're suffering. Like it's what's in the way of the heart's full release. And as we begin this inquiry, we see that we keep taking things personally, any experience, even our, you know, of course, our thoughts and memories we take personally, but most external events we immediately start taking it personally. And we react accordingly, and then things get worse. Things get tight, because our reaction, our way of relating to our life, you know, always involves self-centered drama. Even when it's obviously not about us, that can disturb us too, right? What about me? <laughs> so anything can be turned into you know, another... Drama. even when it's even when we know it's not about us we want it to be about us that's the self-centered drama nobody's paying attention to me so we begin to see that how we relate matters we begin to see that we're misinterpreting we keep seeing things a particular way and it doesn't seem to be any way to go around taking things personally until we this is where instruction is really helpful at this point, where we're told that well if you if you want to see things in a different way, you need to transform the mind. As long as our mind is structured, is conditioned the same way, it's going to keep seeing the same same way. So we have to change the conditioning in the mind. And the way we transform the mind is we go we train the mind from its usual distracted, scattered, dissipated, superficial way to what we are, we've been calling samadhi. That's the Pali word, Sanskrit word for concentration, or better, the unification of mind. And it actually it changes the experience of sensitivity. When, when our mind is more fragmented and superficial and distracted, then the dominant thing in the mind is our habit energy, our conditioning. Like our past, the sort of influence of the past really is strongly affecting how we're understanding, how we're experiencing, perceiving experience. But when we develop samadhi, there's still we still have our mental habits, we still have our conditioning, but now because... In a sense, the power of the mind, the clarity of the mind is different. It's more, The mind is more stable, more clear. So even though it still has the same habit energy, the same kind of conditioning, now that conditioning, like the filters, the way, the habits that we have of seeing things a particular way, now that conditioning can be seen as just something arising in the present moment. When the mind is distracted and superficial, We don't see the filters, we don't see the habit energies affecting how we're seeing things, how we're relating. It's all under the radar. Doesn't mean we're not affected by our prejudices or our particular expectations or points of views, fixed ideas about things. Completely affected by it, but not aware that we're affected by it. We just assume we, I mean, there's this basic arrogant assumption that we're seeing clearly but we're mostly not seeing clearly. And that's what samadhi reveals. Samadhi reveals, it's not often pleasant because one of the things we see as as we develop the sensitivity is we see how many negative influences that are arising all the time. We see our neediness. We see our fear. We see our irritation. We see our strong tendency just to want to shut down and go numb. We see all of these various patterns. You know, Some, for each of us, are stronger than others. But we all have various patterns that, um, just different ways the mind disconnects, shuts down, skews how it's relating. And when the power of mindfulness and samadhi concentration develop, all this gets illuminated. And this is exactly what we want to happen. But it can be somewhat intense to start seeing this. Fortunately, with samadhi, there's also generally what arises with samadhi is a lot of pleasant calm and that sort of steadiness. And I'll talk more about this tonight. And that allows us to bear the sensitivity that samadhi gives us. So samadhi does two things. It's healing. It feels good. The calm, the energy generally feels good. But there's another side of samadhi, which is that powerful wakefulness and stability of attention. It's like we don't miss anything. And not only in terms of our own condition, but we start seeing it around us, too. We not only see the beautiful qualities in those around us, We also see all of the neurotic, tight, needy energies of those people around us, and the world in general. The mind is just hypersensitive. But you see, this hypersensitivity, this powerful sensitivity, is exactly what we need because we're trapped in superficiality. And because the mind is superficial and distracted, the energy dissipated. We keep seeing things the way we've always seen them. We never get out of our patterns, whatever they might be, our conditioned patterns. And the whole path you know, that the Buddha laid out is a full and complete release of the heart. That means the heart is going beyond the weight and the sort of uh, limitations, the restrictedness, constriction of its patterns, of its conditioned or habits. They really limit the freedom of the heart. You know, and we generally, in the Buddhist tradition, we sum up all those limitations as something like our self centered habits, self centered conditioning. You know, different. It's not like one pattern. It's like we have hundreds of patterns, some stronger than others, hundreds of habits, but they're all characterized by self centeredness, the mind projecting or imputing. A somebody who needs something, as somebody who's afraid of something, a somebody who's confused about something. And that projection is very confusing because in a superficial way, it seems real. It seems like this is actually how it is. There is somebody confused. There is somebody who needs. There is somebody who's afraid. And it sets in motion, of course, behaviors that then reinforce the particular... Points of view, the particular self centered points of view. So it's an endless circle that in Buddhism we call samsara, the cycles of suffering. It gets repeated over and over again. So the Buddha lays out this very commonsensical path, you know, basically saying, friends, develop samadhi. Transform your way of seeing, your way of being in the world, your way of relating in the world, not by like. You can't just go in and throw out your points of view. The only way to transform our way of being or our way of relating is basically we're transforming the instrument that's experiencing. We're transforming experiencing itself by changing the energy of it from a dissipated, superficial, distracted energy of the mind to a very stable balanced, uh, perfectly clear, or going in the direction of that clarity, uh, qualities of mind. The mind that can't help but see things as they are. And this is how we change our view, our understanding, our way of being in the world. And in the past couple weeks, I've been emphasizing, like, one of the ways to develop samadhi is to recognize, well, what's in the way of it? And we've talked about the five hindrances quite a bit in the last few weeks. You know, Learning to recognize the force of craving in the mind as something that is supporting the distraction, the superficiality, the lack of stability in the mind. And to recognize all the different qualities of aversion, and fear, and boredom, and irritation, and impatience, and all the different qualities of dullness, and sleepiness, and heaviness, and all the different qualities or habits around restlessness and worrying and all the different habits around doubt that sort of circular quality of mind second-guessing itself never really settling into anything because it's always doubting wondering was this right should I do it this way should I keep still or move my body is this person a better meditator than me you know, should I practice at Common Ground, or should I go practice at this other place? Should I stay at home tonight? You know, this is like the quality of doubt. And so in the past few weeks, we've been talking about how to first just recognize when one of the five hindrances, you know, the Buddha divided up all the different ways that samadhi can be hindered You know, in these five ways. And so you could just use this formulation, it's probably useful to memorize it. And then whatever the hindrance you're experiencing, just put it in one of these five categories. It's either craving, or aversion, or too much energy, restlessness, too little, dullness, or doubt. And probably you'll be able to put it into one or more of these categories easily. And then that just helps sort of frame it so you can see, oh, it's just doubting. It's just aversion. It's just this hindrance. And now we're, we're already beginning to transform. Because normally the hindrances arise, and then they become sort of who or what we think we are. I'm angry. I'm full of doubt. I'm sleepy. I'm restless. I really need to do this in order to be happy. And then the hindrance, in a sense, becomes the self. And we're deluded by it. But now we have a practice. You know, The abandonment of the hindrances is instead of being angry, we're aware. Oh, there's anger, and it's like this. There's irritation or impatience or fear, some form of aversion, and it's this. It's this experience being known. It's just something being known. And you see that immediately, just the recognition of the hindrances, is already a, a powerful transformation in view from being the angry one to understanding there's anger, and it's like this. And then the more we can find some stability, some presence with, oh, there's anger and it's like this, we begin to notice very quickly, if we have a little stability, that anger is coming and going. Because as you know, the present moment isn't some static thing. The present moment is very dynamic. So if there's a moment of anger, it's just a moment of anger. And in order for anger to be anger, 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 it's got to cease and arise, cease and arise, cease and arise, because the present moment is dynamic. And we start to see this really helps deepen the understanding that anger is a moment-to-moment thing. The mind isn't angry for 10 minutes, or it isn't craving for 10 minutes. Craving, anger, doubt, dullness, restlessness, or moment-to-moment events. And when the mind begins to see it in that very fluid way, it isn't so identified with it. We get identified with strong emotional afflictive states because we think that's who we are. I'm depressed. I'm really excited. I'm optimistic. I'm pessimistic. You know, whatever however we define ourselves, we tend to create a static idea and then Because the mind is superficial, because the the attention isn't powerful, we're able to manipulate our experience to confirm the static point of view we have. I'm depressed. I'm angry. I'm happy. But the reality, when there's a lot of clarity, a lot of stability, then we see that the mind states, the sort of different moods or emotions, it's quite fluid. We can be angry, angry, and then happy, and this really loosens the tendency of the mind to grip, to fixate, and take personally the particular mind state that's being known in that moment. So that's what we've been working on in the past: recognizing the hindrances, not uh, not believing the thought that I can't practice because I'm angry, I can't practice because I'm sleepy, I can't practice because I'm restless. But to uh, realize, that, oh, the mind actually can get interested in this. right? That's what mindfulness is. It's just seeing it as a present moment event. Oh, well, I can get interested in dullness. The mind that knows that the mind is dull is not dull. The mind that knows the mind is confused or full of doubt isn't doubt itself. The mind that sees there's anger is not angry. The awareness of anger isn't angry. And this is really, I mean, it's, these are words, of course, but when we actually see that, it's very liberating. So this is one way to work with the hindrances. One way to develop samadhi is to, vi- to learn to recognize what's in the way and to basically practice not being confused by it. So we're actually beginning to use the hindrances as fuel to develop samadhi, because samadhi happens when the mind Sees clearly the way it is and stays relaxed and at ease in that seeing how it is. And it doesn't really matter what the mind is seeing clearly. It can see the in breath clearly or it can see the hindrance clearly. It can see, oh, there's anger and it's like this. That moment of seeing anger and it's like this, letting it be, can be the next moment in the development of samadhi, this beautiful balance, this stable balance of mind, that sees things as they are. So if we can just recognize it and accept it and let it sort of express itself, let the hindrance express itself without getting attached to it, without taking it personally, then it's just a very effective way to heal the mind, from its superficial, fragmented, dis- dissipated way to very powerful, se- powerfully sensitive, clear, relaxed way of being now there's another way that I want to spend some time talking about tonight and next week and I mentioned it briefly last week so you could say working with the hindrances is the negative way not negative in a bad sense but negative in the sense of seeing what's in the way of Samadhi but we can positively cultivate Samadhi by recognizing the uh, the wholesome qualities of mind that support concentration, that support this unification, this stability. And the interesting thing about wholesome qualities of mind, when they're recognized they get stronger. When I notice, even if it's quite, you know, weak, if I notice calm, if I notice joy, if I notice interest, if I notice tranquility, just the noticing of the quality itself in the mind strengthens it. So, we want to become well versed in wholesome qualities. We tend to at first get well versed in the unwholesome qualities because they get our attention. Doubt gets our attention, negativity, judgment, you know, the critical mind gets our attention, impatience gets our attention, restlessness gets our attention. But now, you know, after we've practiced a while, we want to get just as uh, sensitive. To the wholesome qualities, we want to like have a, an inner vocabulary for the different aspects of wholesomeness in the mind, so we can very quickly recognize, oh, that's interest, that's wholesome interest, that's wholesome joy in the mind, that's energy. You know, this is what mind, this is the experience of mindfulness, the mind recognizing, ah, this is how it is. This is the mind connecting and sustaining. This is tranquility. This is stillness or peace. This is ease or happiness. So we like have this vocabulary, this inner vocabulary, and we begin to notice it. And when we're not having to like put out fires, you know, this particular negative storm arises and there's a lot of doubt or a lot of dullness, and we just have to deal with it. But when the mind is relatively stable, that's the time to begin to uh, like, pull out the list, like uh, one of the lists we'll be working with. And I'm going to create a little cheat, cheat sheet to hand off to people next week that will have these different lists named or written out. So one of these little lists that it's good to memorize are the five jhanic factors. So these are the factors, the qualities of mind that are present when the mind comes into samadhi, when samadhi develops. The initial application of mind, what we often call connecting, the sustained application of mind or sustaining energy, the joy or rapture, joyful interest or rapture, ease or happiness, that kind of relaxation of the heart or the contentment of the heart, and the one-pointedness or stillness of the mind. Now these are this is a good list to look at. So whenever you're feeling somewhat balanced and not overly afflicted by the hindrances, by the negative states of mind. And there you are with your breath or with the sensations of the body or with the hearing, feeling somewhat at ease, then just notice like you can see if you can really recognize that part of the mind, that part of attention that is knowing, oh, this is how it is. It's not like the mind is even saying those words, of course, this is how it is. But the mind is very clearly connecting with the present moment. Like if you're working with your breath, there's a very, very clear recognition, like at the begin- beginning of the in breath, the mind is very clearly knowing that touching sensation and the, maybe the coolness of it as the breath is coming in. Or the warmth of it as the breath is going out so that experience of touching it's like the attention is coming right to that simple ordinary experience of touching and there's that contact and there's a real energy of the mind connecting so in this way the connecting really sets aside or suppresses any dullness in the mind because initially the mind has to really make an effort to connect because it's habit is to be superficial, to not pay attention to the ordinary, to just sort of be weak, kind of in this weak sort of the mind, the attention of the mind is basically being pushed around. You know, a thought comes up and it, it sort of goes there and that thought in a way pushes it to the next thought, which pushes it to the next thought. And the attention, the you know, the capacity to know is like entrapped by this, stream of thoughts so to take attention and connect it's like we have to take it away from its seduction well, I gotta think about that no honey know this you know know the next in-breath know this next moment of the in-breath and then the next moment so that connecting really energizes the mind because it takes effort it's not the mind's habit And then that next quality, the sustained application of mind, or sustaining, is it's not just doing at once. Like I mentioned a few moments ago, experience is happening moment by moment. Because our mind is superficial, distracted, the energy is not developed, it seems like things are static. Like when we feel pain in the body, it just feels, oh, yeah, this is the pain I was having 10 seconds ago. But it's not. It's a different reality. And not only different than 10 seconds ago, but experience is transforming. It's unfolding moment by moment. So in order to sustain that awareness of the in-breath or the out-breath or whatever object the mind is knowing, that there's that sustaining energy. And the image that's used is the initial application is like the striker hitting the bell. And then the sustained application of mind is that resonance. So not forgetting the object. Not forgetting this is how it is. Connecting and sustaining. And it doesn't necessarily mean that the object, what's being sustained with is the same object. It's not. But it's a not losing the connecting. It's the sustaining of connecting. So it's a connection and then the sustaining. It's a recognition. This is how it is. And see, that's the initial difference. A normal moment of consciousness. Of course, in a sense, the mind is knowing things. Like I could be lost in thought. And of course, the mind is knowing the thoughts it's lost in. But the mind isn't knowing that thoughts are being known. So that's the connection. The connection is a remembering. Oh, this is being known now. And then the sustaining is the mind isn't forgetting whatever it is that's being known now. So remember, the sustaining doesn't mean that the object that's being known is static. I'm knowing it, I'm knowing it, I'm knowing it. Because nothing in the field of experience is static. So if you know one thing, it isn't long before it's gone. Now, it doesn't mean that experience appears to have some resonance or some some solidity. But it's only because we're seeing it superficially. When we look at it very closely, it's quite alive with movement. Even like seemingly solid, painful sensations in the body, like if we have an ache in the knee, it may feel like it's one solid, permanent, static thing. But when the mind relaxes enough and is interested enough, you'll see that any strong pain in the body, no matter how fixed, permanent, it appears to be, is quite alive with change. And so what that means in terms of sustaining or that sustained application of mind is it's not trying to hold on to the particular object that was known in the previous moment. It's the not forgetting this is being known now. It's the not forgetting the present moment. That's what sustains. It's that present moment awareness that's sustained. And so it could be quite dynamic. We could be knowing the pain in the knee, knowing the pain in the knee, knowing the pain in the knee, knowing the in-breath, the in-breath, the in-breath, the out-breath, the out-breath, the out-breath, the the in-breath, thinking. Thinking is like this. Thinking is like this. Just thoughts. Feeling the sort of visceral feeling of the thoughts, like the, the sort of body reflecting the content. Oh. Emotion is like this emotions like this then back to the breath and you could have that sustained application of the mind because Through that 10 or 20 seconds the mind didn't forget. This is how it is now So it was sustaining now. It's nice to sort of use something Like the breathing, you know, but the in-breath, you know, isn't one thing The in-breath is very diverse as an experience. The beginning of the in-breath is not like the middle of the in-breath, or the end of the in-breath, or that little gap, and then the out-breath, and then the middle of the out-breath, and the end. So it's not like one experience. There's a a multitude of things being known, moment by moment, when there's a continuity, or that sustained application of the mind. And it's simpler, of course, in some ways, to develop the connecting and the sustaining with one general object like the breath but don't assume it's one thing it's not it's an infinite number of mind moments be you know different aspects of the in breath and out breath being known and then of course the next in and out breath is not like the previous in and out breath just like snowflakes you know no two snowflakes are alike no two breaths are alike we only think that when our mind is over here in the superficial dissipated Distracted mode and it seems so stupid to pay attention to breath because I already know it But of course we don't know this breath. This breath has never happened before And if we can bring that kind of freshness that sort of vivid presence We'll recognize it will feel very new and alive and amazing even something as ordinary as an in-breath or a sound or anything because what will be you know, in that sustained, that connecting, and the sustaining of mindful attention, the thing that stands out is the freshness, is the newness, never beforeness of our experience. And that brings us to the third quality, which is rapture. Energy really begins to build. The, the power of the mind begins to build. And the experience is what we call rapture, joyful interest. The mind, body even, feels like it's held, wrapped in the experience. That's how you know there's connecting and sustaining. Because like everything in life, it's all lawful. So when you have connecting and sustaining happening with some frequency, joyful interest, rapture, cannot not arise. It will arise in the mind. And you want to start to recognize it, even in very subtle ways. So instead of, you know, just looking for an experience that sort of rocks your world, just a very subtle feeling of heightened energy in the mind and body. Or a kind of tingling, vibration even. Or sometimes in the text it's described like the the initial early stages of rapture, like your hair is standing up on the body. That kind of energy, that heightened energy just like you know if you heard a strange noise at night before you assume that somebody was in the in the house you know that wasn't supposed to be there but you're just you're just interested like is that the cat moving is that the wind and you have that sort of heightened it's like the beginning stages of rapture because at night when that happens you have connecting and sustaining right and you get the rapture now there's fear involved so it won't be very stable, but when you're using ordinary experience, like hearing, feeling the sensations of the body, awareness of the breath, moving in the body, then you can really get the connecting and sustain. You can build the rapture, so it can be quite strong. And of course, when the rapture gets really strong, that joy, that energy in the mind, well, then when we're you know remember the practice is to be aware of the present moment. So we're still connecting and sustaining, but now the awareness, the attention is including the experience of rapture itself. Don't get confused. We don't use that word rapture too much. And so, you know, you might just immediately dismiss, oh, that's not for me. It's not happening in my practice. I'm restless or I'm dull or I'm always distracted. But everybody from time to time gets some moments of connecting and sustaining. And in those moments, you want to notice rapture. Because now, as I'm talking about the practice, I'm talking about how you can support the development of samadhi by recognizing the wholesome qualities when they're present. The more you know these qualities, the more you can, in a sense, call them up. When you remember rapture, when you remember ease, the fourth quality, and stillness, Just the memory of it is like a little wormhole to the actual reality of it. These qualities are never far away. They're just dormant. They're just waiting to sort of be watered with attention, a kind of appreciation or respect. But we won't respect them. We won't call them forth if we don't have confidence that they're there. So we need to start to recognize them even in relatively Weak states, you know, so that the samadhi or the different qualities of samadhi aren't that strong. But you can still, in a sense, you're recognizing them in their seed-like form or their dormant form. And then they start to strengthen. So we have the initial application, the sustained application. We have rapture or joyful interest. And then we have ease. When there's a lot of joy, that joyful interest, it extinguishes aversion from the mind aversion is when we don't like the way it is right and now we've got a lot of bliss a lot of joyful interest now we like how it is and that liking how it is the mind liking how it is it suppresses aversion from the mind and that that release so that letting go of aversion is experienced in the mind as a kind of mental relaxation I like to talk about it as the heart relaxing, but I'm, when I talk about the heart relaxing, it does have a it does have a visual a visceral component to it, but it's really the energetic heart. It's like a, ah in the mind heart ah as aversion as all the irritation and the impatience begins to disappear from the mind. There's a real release, kind of contentment, and we call that ease. The Pali word is sukha. sukha, sometimes translated as happiness, contentment, has elements of contentment. I like the word ease because of its visceral feeling. Ah, oh. And that is the inevitable result of stronger and stronger states of rapture, because the rapture wraps the attention. The mind, in a sense, is consumed. It's engaged. It's awake. And in that awakeful presence, it's not irritated. It's not fearful. It's not impatient. And that is a release. And that's a sweeter release than the kind of more energetic joy, joyful interest rapture. And so this becomes more and more, with more practice, with more continuity, this ease, this happiness, becomes the dominant quality of the mind. And at this point, connecting and sustaining becomes less and less important and uh, You know we have a tendency to want to like oh, I don't I don't want to stop connecting to the in-breath sustaining the attention But at some point that energy of connecting and sustaining is too gross And we want to pay more attention to the joy and especially the feeling of ease just relaxing just trusting the joy, and especially the ease in the present moment, that's moral practice. The breath is still happening, but we're not making, we're not following or uh, acting on the intention to connect and sustain. It's like too much doing. And now the practice is morphing into more resting and trusting and letting things be. Initially, with this would have worked. Just letting things be, because we would have just let distractions be, you know, and we would have continued to be distracted. So we needed that sort of more forceful effort to connect and sustain attention. But now the mind has already has some composure, has some integrity, and now the work of the practice is more in resting and trusting and being interested in what's subtle and beautiful. Not active and beautiful, not the joy, but now we're interested in the ease and right into stillness, the one-pointedness. This is the dropping away of the doer. That's what this last, this fifth quality, ikagata, one-pointedness of mind or stillness of mind. It's the stillness of the doer. So when we have a lot of joy, there's still a doer. There's The doer is enjoying the joy, appreciating the joy. And then it begins to feel a sort of ah, that relaxation as the aversion leaves. And then when we're really resting in that ease, that happiness of the heart, then restlessness goes away. Because why would there be restlessness? I've always wanted to be here, content, at ease, resting. I'm resting in a pleasant heart state, mind state. And the more we rest, The more that even appreciating that ease is extra work and the mind becomes very still this is when the doer realizes it doesn't have anything to do and then the mind experiences peace so here these earlier qualities of samadhi become less and less important and we're really emphasizing the ease and the stillness until the stillness really is the dominant quality in the mind There may be other things still being known kind of in the background. Even the breath could be known in the background or other subtle body sensations might be known in the background. Other wholesome qualities of mind might be known in the background like a more subtle, sort of distant kind of joy. But what really pervades the mind in the deeper states of concentration is peace or stillness. That's the dominant quality and the mind doesn't do anything with it so the practice is just to let the stillness be or just to let go into the stillness understanding that whole art or science of samadhi actually supports it now it doesn't support it if you just criticize yourself now that you know more about it you know and you can judge your meditation practice or well, that doesn't look you know like mark talked about <laughs> But what you want to do is you want to, you know, when the mind is relatively stable, relatively calm, you want to start noticing, especially the earlier three qualities of that initial and sustained application of mind and the joy or the joyful interest, that rapt feeling of the mind and body that can arise in that, the energy building. Really be on the lookout for it. Oh, the mind is more bright. And it's so interesting, you know, we can be so withered or discombobulated or heavy, you know, when we go into the sit, and then when the samadhi starts to build, all of a sudden it's like, you know, a nice pot of green tea. We feel very alive and awake, and this is the healing that often talked about as a healing, where the what was really weighing us down. It wasn't so much that the body was exhausted. But the mind was discombobulated. And it's like it just needed to be put back together. And when it gets put back together, we're ready for action again. And especially if you go all the way where you're starting to experience the stillness of mind, then when we come back into the world of activity, then we're just so much more effective at whatever we're going to do. Because the mind is in a very good place. It's ready to be put to work. In, you know, in, the Buddhist, in the Buddhist path of awakening, we put it to work by examining, seeing clearly the way it is, looking at how impermanent everything is, looking how whenever the mind gets attached, it's unsatisfying, it's heavy, looking how impersonal everything is. But you can also put it to work taking care of your kids or making your dinner. But you can, you know, we can in the activity that the thing about this samadhi when we when we really get good at the samadhi it's like we can be doing the things of the world and we can also be doing our practice at the same time right like another formulation of how to what to do with samadhi with how to put it to work is to reflect on the four noble truths suffering and the end of suffering so there we are in our life being a parent being an employee being a citizen being a lover There we are doing what we do in all those different roles. But what we're really doing, as we're doing those roles very effectively, much more effectively than we used to do them because of the samadhi, but what we're really doing is we're noticing suffering and the end of suffering. Like we're noticing when there's peace, when there's a real sense of freedom in the activity, and when we're noticing when there's not. And when there's not freedom, we're noticing what's in the way. And we're noticing what needs to be let go of. And then we're letting go of that. And when there is freedom. We're simply resting in the freedom of that activity. That's what a practitioner does. They learn how to develop deep states of samadhi, and then they bring that samadhi into the world in order to watch for suffering and the end of suffering, so that we get really good at the end of suffering, <laughs> the letting go, right, the, the cessation, the dropping away, knowing what needs to be let there. But I'll leave it here. We have about 12 minutes. It'd be nice to hear from people. And again, I'll I'll spend another week at least on these five jonic factors. And next week, I'll have a cheat sheet for everybody that you can take with you to help remember the five hindrances and the five jonic factors that we talked about tonight and some of the things we talked about back in September. But first, we'll take some time now. If you have any comments or questions, what comes to mind? It would be nice to hear from people your own experiences when your mind heart has come into balance in life, in your sitting practice, your experience of the jhanaic factors. Mark, I do it. Mark. Yeah, David. So, how are how you uh pay attention to the breath but not take over? I mean, automatically, as soon as I've my breath, no longer uh, automatic thing. There's yeah. No oh, I definitely know what you're asking. <laughs> it's really challenging to be with the breath in that balanced way. But if we could already do it, then we could already do it. you know what I mean? So it's a practice. And there's really two tactics. I mean, generally speaking, two tactics. One is just the plow ahead. So even though it appears, that the mind is controlling the breath, is struggling with it in one way or another. We just keep doing it. You know. So we're not intentionally trying to control the breath. But the mind, out of habit, is maybe controlling the breath, or at least that's how it feels. But we don't, we don't allow doubt to get established in the mind just because the breath feels controlled. We're just knowing, oh, the breath is like this. The in-breath is like this. The breath is like this and we know we're not intentionally trying to make it anyway we know it's unpleasant and we just we're just following it and if we can really do that if we can really connect and sustain joy will arise and as that rapture arises the body and mind will relax with that fourth quality right of ease and that will balance the whole thing up a bit. The other thing you can do, the other tactic, so one is just to go ahead, just keep doing it, seeing the breath, seeing the out-breath, no matter how ugly it is, no matter how heavy or tight it feels, don't get confused by the unpleasantness of the breath. The other tactic is a more wisdom end of things, where you're going to investigate what seems to be extra in the breath coming in. So you're aware of the breath but you're aware maybe the mind is afraid it's not doing it right and that's causing its controlling or is really striving, you know so it's either greed or aversion is somehow built in to the awareness of the in-breath and the out-breath and so you're working with the hindrances, basically and you're trying to very quickly recognize oh, this is aversion, this is greed and it's like this And so the breath is there, but the actual predominant uh, object is the hindrance. It's like what the mind, what's coloring the mind at that point. And you're trying to see it. Like when you see the fear, then you're letting it sort of bloom. You're not controlling it. You're not trying to let go of the fear. You're letting go of the attachment or the identification with the fear. You're not letting go of the desire, like wanting to do the breath meditation right, wanting to get to those beautiful states of mind. You're not letting go of the greed. You're getting interested in the greed. And by getting interested in the greed, you're letting go of your identification with it because you're seeing that it's just wanting. And that's how we let go of the attachment to the greed. So that's the other tactic, is to get interested in what's in the way. So either we're going the positive way, which is working on the five Jonic factors, connecting and sustaining and not giving up on that. Or we're going the negative way where we're looking at what's in the way. And those are the two basic tactics. And the key is not to give up and not to keep switching. So either, you know, work with the hindrances or work with this. But don't immediately oh I should look at the hindrance. Or oh I should just stick with the breath, you know, because then you don't really do either of them. And so sometimes like it's nice to know you know, for this set, I'm just going to really try to sustain the attention. Just keep coming back. Just keep starting over. Not to worry too much about the hindrances, unless I can't even connect with the, the, you know, the basic object or anchor for the practice. And other times, it's, it's, it's really good to be interested in all the disturbances and really you know, bring the practice there. Thanks, Dave. Other thoughts people have? Yeah, Mark. There's certain of mind I have at times, when I just need to go out and just, like, go for a, a, a run, you know. And afterwards, I don't even need to try to meditate. It's just kind of, you know, just naturally starts breathing, and it's just, now granted, there's a lot of endorphins kicking in and, mm-hmm. and a lot of good stuff. Um, you know, I just want to comment on that, because on one hand. It almost helps my practice, but on the other I don't want to make it a crutch to my practice yeah. and say, well, I can't, I can't sit because I got a problem for a Well, I think you analyzed it just right. And what I would do is, when you do run, I would really look for the five jonic factors. Connecting, sustaining, joyful interest, ease, and stillness. Because they're probably operating, and it's probably healing the mind. So the mind is afflictive discombobulated superficial you know and then you did something and in that doing the running or swimming laps or yoga or tai chi you know if you do it with the right Attitude to some degree you're going to get some healing That's what samadhi is samadhi is the healing of the mind from its dissipation its scatteredness its distraction right that's what it is and that that heals the mind now, your, but your point is really important, Mark, about you don't want to uh, condition the mind to always have to take a run, because you can do that healing without running. It's just that your mind knows it. It's a pretty concrete activity. It's easy, the running, you know, and the rhythm of running, it's really easy to, to do the connecting and the sustaining, especially before a lot of pain comes in. And then even with the pain, though, you can use, pain is actually quite useful for connecting and sustaining. You can get a lot of rapture connecting and sustaining with unpleasant physical sensations. But it's not our habit to connect and sustain with unpleasant our habit is to worry about them or to, you know, think about them. So anyway, you so what what you learn in the run remind yourself, oh I can do this sitting. And the nice thing about sitting, I can get really clear. There's just fewer distractions in sitting. You're not seeing a bunch of things and hearing a bunch of things and out in the world. So in that relative simplicity of the environment, you're able to get more clear about these five things and become a real artist, a real craftsperson in terms of creating samadhi. I mean, that's really what it's about. You know, people interested in the path the Buddha taught were still maybe interested in knitting and watching TV and reading good books. But what really interests us is this craft of the mind, developing beautiful mind states wholesome mind states and recognizing how powerfully that they transform our way of being in the world. We become, we live in a way that's healing for ourselves and for those around us. And there's nothing arrogant about that. It's just a, re, you know, it's just a beautiful art to cultivate. Yeah, thanks Mark. Yes, Stan. This is a finer point I think but what you're saying when I run out of Mark's describing and at the end, you can have a semi-samadhi type state. Mm-hmm. But it's for me, it's the challenge of how to do that mindfully versus mindlessly. Because I can just do it mindlessly and I feel kind of bliss, but if I yeah. keep running and be, keep, keep running being aware of each of those steps, so running becomes just like sitting on a push. Yeah. And remember what I said right at the very beginning, which is when we develop samadhi, we do get the, the healing, but we also inevitably get sensitivity. And sometimes the sensitivity is unpleasant. So, what often, why we often choose to sort of trance out in something like running or meditation is because we don't really want to be sensitive. And we don't want to be sensitive in this deep way because we somehow think we can get through life. Just seeking pleasant experiences without really learning anything. And, you know, what the Buddha says is it doesn't work. It doesn't mean that we don't get some temporary relief just by trancing out in the different ways. But what we really want is we want that sensitivity. And I think that's what I heard you describing. It's like there's two ways, like to use running. One is just to trance out, where we're really emphasizing. The connecting and sustaining, but it's almost like we're using it to hypnotize the mind. You know, the mind sort of just goes into a trance, and we're, we're. Uh, it's not even so much. Uh, it's like the mind is sort of just uh, finding a, a soft, fuzzy place to hide, and we're losing that sort of the you know, the initial part, the, the initial connection, sort of gets lost, like actually connecting with the present moment and that interest. And like uh, the whole idea is sort of to uh, like embed in the whole samadhi process. This is the difference between wholesome samadhi and like a trance is like unwholesome concentration. So that's why concentration isn't a good word to use, because we can have really unwholesome concentration too. But wholesome samadhi, wholesome concentration, means that truth, the seeking of truth, seeking the way that it actually is, is embedded in the samadhi. So that the samadhi is arising out of that truth seeking. So the object that's being used to develop, to to unify the mind, is truth seeking itself seeing the present moment as it is because we can collect the energy of the mind around delusion like we can have the thought i'm just running just the thought not the actual experience and we can collect the energy of mind around that you know we can collect the energy of the mind around you know i'm better than you we can we can create a trance like state a sort of an obsession around anything and we get a little bubble of protection, but it's fragile. You know, it, it sort of. But the truth-seeking samadhi isn't fragile, because there's always the present moment to be aware of. So it it has a kind of stability, but it it has to be all inclusive. That's the downside of what we call samadhi or wise concentration. It includes everything, including the unpleasantness of life, including the inevitable feelings of loss in life. So it's a full exposure. We get the blissful effects of samadhi, but we also get the full exposure. Excuse me, I think, I think you got what I'm saying, but what I was hearing more, you are talking about the Karan and I'm thinking also you were to give them what you're just describing, the latter. Process. Yeah. So and it's how, how do I get it? Yeah, 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 exactly. No, I, I think I heard you right, and I think that's right. You have to make a choice, because you can do both. And, and we have to make that same choice in meditation, because we can just use meditation practice to create a nice, soft bubble for ourselves. And so we get a real vacation from our crazy lives. It feels good. But we're not doing what's going to ultimately lead to deeper transformation, which is cultivating samadhi or concentration around seeing things as they are cuz you can have like you know a lot of people in this room probably started with mantra practice and one of the things about mantra practices or other more abstract forms of meditation is the mind is creating like it it manufactures something sacred like an image of god or a phrase that points to this idea of god and then it focuses on it and it creates a sort of pleasant wholesome bubble about God or about what's beautiful, about love, but that's not things as they are, and that wholesomeness remains as long as the bubble is intact. But if somebody pops the bubble, then not only is the bubble gone, but we can feel really disappointed and angry at the person or whatever popped the bubble, or feel threatened by it even. So it's the same thing with uh, you know when we run and, and just use it to get into a nice trance state. Is then it's like we will start getting feeling dependent almost addicted so then we're going to want to use chopping vegetables to get into that trance state and everything will be sort of used to sort of disappear from life but if we cultivate the samadhi about being in the moment then it will be help us be skillful because we'll always be using the present moment as a way of collecting the energy of the mind yeah thanks for bringing that up Stan I think that's good yeah and we'll end with Actually, you know what, Dave, we're over already. Sorry about that. Yeah, next time. So let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.